Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission, The Tales of Sage and Savant. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor of Asmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. We are delighted to have special guest appearance this month by Sarah Shea as Sasha. If you want to learn more of the stories of Sage and Savant and the reasons why I record these broadcasts, you can pick up our book, Transmigrations, available on our website and everywhere books are sold. This month's program, entitled We Know Not What We May Become, is sponsored by Clockwork Alchemy and features the music of Sarah Shea. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. When last we saw our doctor, she had returned full of rage from a disastrous trip to the far future. Never before had the passions of a host body so overwhelmed the intellect of the transmigrationists. Never before had those passions extended their influence on the doctor's own form. It would be natural to assume, dear listeners, that such an event might serve as a break on the engines of science or at the very least serve as a cautionary influence on transmigrations going forward. But such an assumption could be made only if one ignored the driving ambitions of our doctor. Supplemental Log, Laboratory Dr. Petronella Sage, King's College, 15 January, 1896. The lingering rage felt by this transmigrationist after return from the far future is a troubling development, but not necessarily of paramount importance in establishing the efficacy of the technology. There are many factors that contribute to emotional resonance after transmigration. The first and most usual is the factor of time. The longer one is in a host body, the more likely one is to experience residual emotions upon returning to one's own time. The second factor, however, is a more nebulous one, and that is related to the severity of feelings present in the host body and perhaps to the interactions said body has a history of. Since Descartes and Locke, philosophy has attempted to connect consciousness and conscience, to prove that man cannot think at any time waking or sleeping without being sensible of it. 
But Leibniz, with his petite perceptions, opens the door to Stuart Mill's ideas of mental emergence, expanding upon Kant's thought that phenomenal consciousness could not be a mere succession of associated ideas, but at a minimum had to be the experience of a conscious self situated in an objective world structured with respect to space, time, and causality. I believe that some part of our conscious self must be connected to our bodily experience of space and time. But that memory or shade of emotions which remain extant in the body constitute very little danger to transmigrationists due to the rarity of such uncontrollable emotions or intemperate personalities. Therefore, I see no need to curtail the experiments nor slow the rate of transmigration. No. Petronella Sage is not discouraged by the negative impact of transmigratory emotional congruence and, in fact, has determined to speed the pace of her investigations. She is also doing her best not to let the professor's more cautious nature upset her. She doesn't want to see Erasmus as just one more man trying to keep her from achieving her goals. Hmm. Frederick Layton has died. Who? Frederick Layton, the president of the Royal Academy, and good riddance, too. He refused my presentation, galvanistic stimulation on the lumbar and sacral plexus in order to restore the stability of the body, on the grounds that a female, owing to the armature of the corset, could have no true idea of bodily stability that is not achieved through artificial means. Huh! Oh, the cat! Indeed. Oh! Look, a group of ladies in New York competed in the first all-female six-day bicycle race. Really? At a woman's college? No, at Madison Square Gardens, no less. Well, progress comes in fits and starts, but the future does seem bright for women. Oh, let's not get ahead of ourselves, dear. We're a long way from women everywhere having the vote, and no real change will happen until we have a say in the halls of power. Men are remarkably facile at squashing female opportunity. Oh, I know. Most times the cart must follow the horse, but break the traces on a hill and the horse will have to run to catch the cart. <laughs> now you sound like me. So, when was this race? Doctor, this paper is two weeks uh, old. I haven't had much chance to read lately. <laughs> Too busy with romance, hmm? Making big plans for St. Valentine's? No, what? Why would you? I mean, what makes you think such a thing? Well, you can't fool me. I see how you two have been mooning about ever since I can. We haven't been mooning about. You have. Not that I'm judging it's about time. It's not what you think, Abigail. You mean it is not that you've come to an agreement that he won't pressure you to marry and you won't bar him from your company? Yes. Well, no, but wait. That you haven't finally figured out that you have a secret laboratory and up here you can do as you please? Abigail, that is enough. Yes, <laughs> the professor and I have agreed there will be no marriage. And? And we shall remain good friends. Oh, and that I am her devoted servant, and shall take no other woman to be my bride. Erasmus, I didn't hear you come up. So I've not been imagining it. The laboratory is a love nest. <laughs> well, I wouldn't quite say that, Abigail. But 
Petra has finally got the idea that I will have no other. And I am a man of great patience. I'm right here, oh, if you no, know. Pets, don't be churlish. Abigail is our closest friend, and she is party to all of our other secrets. You know she can be relied on to be discreet. I know, but here's the truth of it. Nothing has really changed between us. I must focus on my work, and you have promised not to stand in the way of that. Mm -hmm. As long as that is the case, you're welcome in my laboratory. And the same goes for you, Abigail. But if either of you prove detrimental to that intention, then I shall lock you out. Are we understood? <laughs> yes, Dr. The work comes first. Good. Now, where should we go today? I've always wanted to visit Russia. Russia it is, then. Abigail, could you consult the chart and set trajectory to send us to Russia circa 1765? We'll go get dressed. Russia it is. Da! And so, our pair light out for Great Russia. What will they encounter in the land of the bear? We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear listeners, we invite you to listen to the talented melodical expressions of Sarah Shea.
And now, back to our story. When we left our heroes, they were embarking on a journey to Russia at a time when the northern nation was just beginning to grow into power in greater Europe. This is a Russia under the rule of Princess Sophie of Anhalt Zerbst, better known as Catherine the Great. I must let you know, dear listeners, that I have bypassed the moment of their arrival and the triage that was necessary to make their bodies livable. I believe we all have a good understanding of that basic process, and it is important in our limited time together that we turn our attention to far more important details. In any case, the doctor and the professor are both in the bodies of young women assigned as ladies-in-waiting to the empress. Erasmus in the body of a pale girl with rosy cheeks named Irina, and Petra in the body of a raven-haired lass named Anya. In theory, this transmigration should be a walk in the palace with minor duties, sumptuous surroundings, and elegant clothing to boot. That would definitely be the case were it not for Sasha, the prima. Katya, Louisa. You will stand here with our lady silken shift and drawers. Zenia, this will be your place. With the robe, and I'll be beside you with the tiara, sash, and necklace. Anya, Irina, you will stand here with her bodice and skirts, but under no circumstance are you to touch Her Majesty. Once Katya and Larissa have dressed her in her underclothes, they shall step up to assist with the dress. You are to stand here with your eyes down and a humble look on your face. You are not forgiven for embarrassing us all at toilette last week, and you are especially not forgiven for not having the grace to die of your affliction. We're sorry, Sasha. Oh, we will be good, we promise. The same illness cannot possibly strike us twice. See that it doesn't, then. Now, serving maids, all of you come here close to the fire. Her Majesty has spent the afternoon with Grigory Grigorievich, and she will need to be thoroughly bathed before dressing. Once she has bathed and dressed, Paulina may lead her to the stool and dress her hair. There. Is everyone at the ready? The army of women waiting to dress the queen accept their orders as their general takes her place in the line. Erasmus is practically vibrating with excitement next to Petra as they await the famous monarch's appearance. I can't believe it. I'm going to get to meet Katharina the Great. You will if your excitement does not get us banished. Shh. They waited, anticipation thrumming in their veins. When finally the queen did appear. And don't forget to have Alexei move next to Moritz at dinner. Thank you, my Gregor. The queen swept into the room, her long curls tumbling free down her back, her lips still swollen from kisses and not a stitch of clothing on. She is carrying a book and places herself in front of the fire, then opens the page marked by a ribbon and begins to read. Sasha claps her hands and the maids hurry to their work. A tub is placed in front of the fire, and maid after maid scurries forward to pour it full with pitcher after pitcher of steaming water. Fragrant oil is added, and the Empress steps into her bath. She is smaller than I had imagined. She's reading Candide by Voltaire, in French, no less. She is the German and the French, in addition to the Russian... Uh, Irina? Yes, Your Majesty? Erasmus belatedly remembers to curtsy and hastily bends his knees. 
He is wobbly and less than elegant, but he remembers to keep his eyes downcast. Which is a good thing, because it means he cannot see the pointed glare Sasha is attempting to skewer him with. You have read Voltaire? Oh, yes, your majesty. I did not know you spoke French. I... 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 Uh, begging your majesty's pardon, I believe Irina is simply trying to say that her French is strong enough to read when one has the luxury of going over lines multiple times to grasp the meaning. That's not the same thing as being fluent in the language. Ah, and have you read Condidania? Not exactly, Your Majesty, but Irina and I have discussed many of the ideas Monsieur Voltaire espouses. And so, do you agree with Leibniz or with Voltaire? Well, certainly optimism has its place, Your Majesty. But so too does a healthy dose of realism. I think the challenge lies in keeping a positive view towards your goals whilst accepting the truth of this world and all the ways it will try to beat you down. Ho oh, ho, Anya. Who knew you were such a philosopher? Towels, quickly! Sasha, why have you kept Anya and Dorina away from my side? You know I enjoy discussing philosophy and I rely on you to find me companions of wit and opinion. I am sorry, Your Majesty. I suppose the philosophical subjects had simply not arisen in conversation before this afternoon. It is entirely my fault. Oh, no, Your Majesty. Do not blame Sasha. She cannot be held responsible for that which she was not aware of. I have never before shared my interest in Voltaire. Well, that was changed immediately. Sasha... Tomorrow I expect you to make a complete inventory of the reading and philosophical interests of the ladies. For tonight, I should like Anya and Arina to be my attendants. Of course, your majesty. The empress completed her toilette, attendants dancing around her like butterflies round a flowering bush. When she was fully clothed, her hair dressed and powdered, her sash and jewels in place, she turned and addressed the room. Now, ladies, to battle. Each of you has been assigned a table at the banquet. I expect you to be bright, witty, and most of all, enwrapped. Listen carefully to every word that is said, every offhand comment, every boast, and remember them well. I shall expect a full report in the morning. Just as the Empress finishes her command, there is a knock on the door of the chamber. The man who enters is Count Grigory Grigorovich Orlov, a general and the architect of Catherine's reign. It was he who led the coup that overthrew Tsar Peter III and installed Catherine as empress. He is the father of two illegitimate children by the queen and is rumored to also be the father of Peter III's heir. Resplendent one, how you shine. Yes, yes. Is the cabinet assembled? They are, your majesty. We are away then. Girls, go and make your own toilet. Tonight we must all be resplendent. The girls all sweep into deep curtsies as the Empress leaves the room. Once she is gone, Sasha calls the troops to action. All right, ladies, you heard Her Majesty. Tonight we must be devastatingly pretty, completely guileless, and utterly charming. Run, prepare. Well, that explains a great deal. It does. 
Uh, Catherine was famed for her breadth of knowledge and shrewd statesmanship. Obviously, part of how she accomplished this was through the help and advice of Grigor Grigorievich, which history speaks of. But history does not mention her employing this army of maids to be her eyes and ears. What is very shrewd. Haven't you learned by now, dearest, that history fails to record those things the historian cannot see? Hmm. The same circumstance that allows these girls to be effective spies for the Empress ensures they will not be written into the history books. Namely, that to most men, girls are nothing but ornaments and incubators. Men overlook the intelligence behind our brows and overestimate that behind their own exponentially. It is a weakness so pronounced that it should have toppled the rule of man eons ago. If not for the dangers and privations of childbearing, we women would rule the world. <laughs> I am sure you're correct on that. Before our duo can repair to their own chamber to dress for the banquet, they are stopped by the prima. Irina, Anya, hold up. Why did you not tell me you understand Voltaire? I suppose the subject never came up? Well, that needs to change. Starting tomorrow, I expect you to teach myself and the other girls. Our Empress needs us at our best. Of course, Sasha. Though, I'm not sure how well I can teach it. Even a little knowledge has power. You are correct on that front. And speaking of knowledge, Sasha, any tips on how we should handle attending the Queen at tonight's banquet? And so, United in the quest for knowledge, the three repair to chamber to get ready for the state banquet and their respective duties. The banquet hall in the royal palace is vast and filled with long tables set for 20 diners each. The palace settings are the finest china and crystal. The flatware is gold. Thousands of candles shed golden light on the scene, casting sparkling reflections. Huge vases filled with greenery and hothouse blooms are spaced along the tables in intervals, creating conversational groups. Seated at the tables are every manner of guest from across the European continent. The mix of accents is intoxicating. Her Majesty, Empress Yekaterina Alexvenia, Tsarina and Eternal Guardian of the Realm, Katarina II. The Empress enters the hall on the arm of her favorite, Grigor Grigorovich, followed closely by Sage and Savant, dressed in the finest blue silk. Our adventurers each have taken a corner of the Queen's long ceremonial robe, and they follow her to the raised royal table in front of the fireplace at the end of the hall. Erasmus, in the body of Irina, looks eagerly around the room, taking in the finery and the little flourishes that establish nationality in the dress of the assembled guests. They see the queen to her chair and then fade to the back of the dais to remain vigilant and ready to serve if needed. There are Spaniards, at least a half a dozen French, a great number of Germans and Prussians, well, as to be expected, Catherine is Prussian herself. English, Scottish, I saw a couple of Chinese in the corner. It's as if the whole world were here for the banquet. How can you possibly identify what country someone is from? Barring, of course, the Chinese who dress so differently. But Europeans, they all have access to the same cloth, the same fashionable ideas. Oh, yes, but the execution of each is, as you say, fashionable ideas is carried out with different alarm. 
The French are more daring with the décolletage. The Spanish are concerned with armature and décor. The English are hopeless when it comes to color, and the Scots square their shoulders towards all. The national personality declares itself in the tilt of the head, the volume of the voice, the reach for the wine. I shall have to take your word for it. <laughs> you laugh, but it's a skill necessary for cultural anthropology to understand the small and subtle ways that people declare themselves and mark out their belonging to their fellows. A state banquet is a long and complicated dance of courses delivered by an array of servants, punctuated by conversation and laughter, yet filled with great tedium and ennui. Which makes this the perfect time to leave our heroes and pause for a word from our sponsor. Ah, the age of steam, the splendor and science, the opulence and adventure. For one glorious weekend, the temporal rifts tying the San Francisco Bay Area to the world that might have been and indeed, to alternate worlds beyond, shall be open for a grand meeting of minds and hearts. Join the adventure of Clockwork Alchemy at the Burlingame Hyatt Regency Hotel, March 22nd to 24th, 2019. Featuring musical guests of honor, Aurelio Voltaire and the Bay Area's favorite swingers, Lee Presson and the Nails, Clockwork Alchemy promises to fill your days with amazement and your nights with melody. Come steam explorers and mad scientists, naval officers and airship pirates, monster hunters and vampires. Welcome diesel punks, Edwardians, neo-Victorians, burners and dandies. Be you colorful rogue or refined lord or lady, your destiny calls. Engineers, shovel in more coal. Clockmakers, set your alarms. Inventors, present your extravagant contraptions and join the cast of Sage and Savant at Clockwork Alchemy. Learn more at clockworkalchemy.com. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. Clockwork Alchemy is a grand meeting of minds and hearts celebrating the splendor and science of the Age of Steam. And now, back to our show. Thanks to the advice of Sasha, our heroes managed to navigate the dinner without committing unforgivable faux pas. Savant watched Catherine with hypnotic fascination. The queen ate little of the sumptuous dishes she had ordered for her guests, dining instead on boiled beef and taking only small beer to drink rather than wine. I find her romantic, ardent and passionate. She's a bright, glassy, hypnotic look, that, that of a wild animal, don't you think? Hmm. She's thoughtful and friendly and yet... When she approached the Spanish ambassador, did you see? He automatically backed away. She frightened some people, which is astonishing. And a person who is so small. <laughs> One of the duties assigned to attendants for the evening is the disrobing of the queen in preparation for bed. Catherine, it seems, was not a night owl and often retired early, leaving her guests free to revel without her. This meant that Sage and Savant would not get the chance to dance or hear the music or enjoy the after-dinner entertainment, but our pair did not seem to mind. As Newton said, the character of the body is irrelevant to physics and science should restrict itself to quantified description of empirical effects only and resist the urge to speculate about that which cannot be seen or measured. Yes, the removal of metaphysics from physics is central to the overall Newtonian stance towards science but no one fought more vigorously for it or has done more to clarify that distinction and give it a public audience than Voltaire. But can we? 
separate the metaphysical from the science? Isn't the very act of observing a metaphysical fun? What could we possibly learn if we did not have the body and the brain by which mechanism to observe the processes? Ah, but here is where Voltaire helps us clarify our thinking. The processes we observe do not exist because we observe them. They simply are. We, as scientists, must endeavor to remove ourselves from the equation in order to have a clear view of what is actually happening. We scientists? So our little Onya has designs on being a scientist? No, well, maybe so. And why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't you indeed? The grand and gilded affectations of the Winter Palace gradually gave way to the more understated and homely decor of the Hermitage, the Empress's private wing. While still palatial and rich, there was something more intimate and personal to these surroundings. They passed through a small dining room where a sign on the wall read, Sit down where you choose and when you please, without it being repeated to you a thousand times. They reached the Empress's private chambers, and in direct contrast to the pomp of the earlier dressing ritual, they helped the Queen disrobe, laying aside the heavy robe, gown, and jewels, loosing her hair from the pins, and releasing the tension of the evening. Oh, that feels marvelous. There are few feelings so wonderful as that of laying down your burdens at day's end. Especially when one knows they will be embraced and cherished in the hours of darkness. I think I should like to see Grigory Alexandrovich tonight. Can you send for him? Not Grigor Grigorievich? I fear Grigor Grigorievich has eyes elsewhere this evening. Oh. <laughs> Don't look so shocked, Anya. Surely you know my reputation. They call me the Messaline of the North and disparage me for having a healthy physical body and an active desire for the company of men. As if women were to enjoy physical attention only when it leads to childbearing. And even then it is not so seemly to enjoy it too much. <laughs> for my part, I would rather emulate Elizabeth of England, take my pleasure where I desire, and remain captain of my own destiny. That seems a most sensible position to take as a monarch. If you do not mind me saying, Majesty, take physical comfort where you will, but leave the affairs of the heart to others. And there are many who would use love as a tool to control, to pin you in, to thwart your desires. But you misunderstand me, Anya. The physical pleasures are not enough for me. My misfortune is that my heart cannot be happy, even for an hour, without love. Uh, you are conflating love and romance, and the two are not inextricably connected. I think that it's nonsense stuffed into our head by men who seek to control us. Of course we can be happy without that version of love, just as a man can be happy as a pirate, or a soldier, or an explorer. Women are just as capable of getting on with their lives and ambitions without the distraction of romantic entanglements. I believe it is entirely possible to feel love towards a person without all the attendant falderal of ownership and behavioral expectations. My goodness, what a cold notion that is, Anya. Why don't you go and find Gregory Alexandrovich, and Irina can stay and brush out my hair. Yes, your majesty. Is Anya always so uptight? 
Oh, she has her own struggles with love and whether it is allowable for a girl to take passion in anything other than her work. Oh, there must be more to life than work. Oh, I agree, Your Majesty. But letting go of the sense of duty is harder for some than others. Mark me. I never let go of this sense of duty. But isn't part of duty the ability to function day in and day out without despair? And in that case, shouldn't we all do the things that keep us from following too long in our defeats or riding too long upon our laurels? For me, the catalyst to action is love. When I feel love, when I am loved, I can conquer any problem, surmount any challenge. The professor brushes the queen's hair, removing the powder, coaxing out the snarls until it lies shiny and soft on her shoulders. Sage arrives back at the bedchamber with the requested man in tow, and our pair take their leave. The planned week in Russia passes quickly as Sage and Savant attend to the Tsarina, do their best to educate the other ladies on philosophical topics, and explore the art collection the Empress is amassing. Through the week, Savant attempted more than once to get Sage alone so he could speak with her of their own love story, but the doctor was avoiding the conversation and managed to duck away each time he brought it up. Finally, the hour came for recall, and the adventurers awakened in the familiar home of the laboratory. Oh, oh it is good to be home. I'm not sure if it remains scientifically necessary to take these longer transmigrations. Really? Oh, I felt like I was learning a great deal oh, and could have stayed longer. Why, we never even left the palace. The time away creates stress on our physical forms, which even our exercise regime cannot fully offset. And so much of our time is spent play-acting in another person's life, whilst the opportunity for real science lies here, inactive and atrophying. Well, perhaps that is true for the hard science of galvanism. But for anthropology, the information gathered on these trips is invaluable. And trips with longer duration, by their very nature, lead to greater understanding. Uh, well, perhaps the answer is for me to send you on trips to the places and eras you most want to explore, whilst I remain to enact further refinements to the equipment and advancements in the process. For example, what if there were a way for us to inhabit the living rather than the dead, to somehow coax the original consciousness into a sleep state that allows us to control the ship, so to speak, but not to end in death on our eviction. But how could you even do such a thing? A and would you not be committing an atrocity by taking over another person's will involuntarily? But what harm could there be in that? Physical harm? Not metaphysical. Oh, this is far past the Newtonian ideal. The separation of metaphysical from physics was not meant to pave the way to barbarism and piracy of another living being. Oh, and beyond that, if you were then to perfect the technology and target specific individuals, could you inhabit Julius Caesar and change the course of Roman history? Or, or enter a series of wealthy people hiding treasures away to be discovered in the modern day? The capacity for misuse of the technology would increase exponentially. Well, with any technology, there's the chance of misuse, but imagine also the good that might come of it. Imagine no longer needing to triage wounded or depleted bodies. Imagine being able to target the exact circumstances to study the exact life and times. Imagine being able to learn literally from the hands of the masters without depriving the world of those self-same hands. What better way to 
learn music than to play with the hands of Mozart. Petra! Oh, and more. For personal reasons. Imagine us being able to take a holiday in the bodies of Tubbs and Hilti, being able to indulge our passions without the fear of career ruination or the need to answer the endless hectoring of one's mother. Is that what this is about, Pat? I've given my word. We do not need to marry to be together, and I will do nothing to jeopardize your career. But you do! You do by being here and by loving me and showing me worlds that I cannot inhabit, things I can never become. I'm not an empress. I can't take lovers with impunity and still carry on in my duties. I must skulk and hide and pretend that love is not part of my life, or cave into the demands of culture and either deny myself or my science. It is intolerable! And on that startling note, Petra flings herself into the dressing room and slams the door. A stunned professor watches her retreat, a look of great confusion on his face. Hello, travelers. Sorry I wasn't here on time for your recall. There was a bit of a dust-up with a donkey. A bit of a dust-up might be an understatement. Abigail's hair is filled with straw. Her plus fours are smeared with what appears to be a combination of snot and molasses, and she smells like a barnyard. Ho, oh, what ho, Abigail! You seem to be in need of a hot shower. This is just good clean dirt, all earned in the pursuit of a noble goal. But the donkey did take her medicine, so yes, I might quite like to have a shower. Yes, well... I'm afraid Petra and I have just had a bit of a dust-up ourselves, and you and I will be forced to wait for our showers until she cools off enough to unlock the door. Oh dear. Did something go wrong in Russia? Oh, I didn't think so. It was a lovely journey. We were handmaidens to the Serena. And so the professor fills Abigail in on the details of their journey and the reasons for Petra's upset. Will the doctor learn to relax and allow love to be part of her life? Or will she choose to stop transmigrating with the professor? We'll find out in the next episode of The Tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a twin star production brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. The theme song for season three was interpreted and recorded by Valentine Wolf. The multi-talented Sarah Shea was kind enough to provide the voice of Sasha in this episode as well as appearing as our musical guest star. Check her out at sarahshea.com. We would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor, Clockwork Alchemy. Episode 307, We Know Not What We May Become, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode? Like us on Facebook or check out our website sageandsavant.com to find the facts behind the fiction. Finally, as always, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science.